0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back, and thank you so much for joining us. I'm Dave Giancola from the USGA, joined, as always, by my colleague and co-host, Mike Trostle. Mike, Happy New Year. How are you? Hey, Dave. Doing great. Happy New Year to you, too. Thank you very much. Mike and I are so excited today to be joined by Amy Olson, who just last month finished in a tie for second place at the 75th U.S. Women's Open, which of course was played down at Champions Golf Club in Houston, Texas. But 11 years before that impressive performance, a young Amy Anderson clinched a USGA championship title when she won the 2009 U.S. Girls Junior Championship. So she's been a friend of the USGA for a long time now, and we'd like to thank that friend for joining us. Amy, happy new year. How are you?
1: Happy new year. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on.
0: Amy, it's our pleasure. And I want to
2: start back at the beginning because people here in North Dakota, and they're not exactly thinking about golf all the time. So who introduced you to the game? And can you tell us a little bit about golf in your state?
1: Yeah, for sure. No, the most common thing I get, I think is that's the one state I've never been to, you know, (laughs) it's it's just one. It's not quite on people's uh, tourist map, but no, I I loved growing up in North Dakota. My dad was really the one who got myself and my brother into the game very early. Um, he just fell in love with it as an amateur and, um, you know, when that was his way of babysitting. My brother and I was to put us in a wagon, give us some snacks and take us to the driving range as he practiced. So we were exposed from a really young age. Um, Fortunately, I grew up in a house that was right on the golf course. So it was just easy, um, you know, on summer evenings to just go out and chip and putt, you know, didn't have to commit to nine holes or 18 holes and just developed a love for the game very early.
2: Yeah. And you said you grew up on a golf course, but it seems like from what I read, your house kind of was a golf course to some extent putting green in the basement, your living room was transformed into some sort of training center. Can you describe for people at home, what that was like and and how you're able to keep your game sharp in those winter months up in North Dakota.
1: Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, a lot of that was for sure due to my dad. Um, In our basement, it was like half finished and then half unfinished. And on the unfinished part, he built like this little platform that had a short, you know, he tested out the, the speed of the carpet to put on there, right? You know, he took his putter and his golf ball into the carpet store and is like, okay, what carpet are we gonna put on the putting green in the basement? And, you know, so just the total nerd amateur who loves the game. So that was in our basement. And we had a little mat, we could even chip onto the the green um, in the basement. And then upstairs, you know, in our formal living room, my poor mom, the formal living room with the high ceilings, you know, there was a PVC pipe like swing circle, if you're familiar with that, and then a mat with a net and a tire because that was one of my favorite drills growing up was like the impact tire. So Right when you walk into our house, any guest that came in knew exactly what our priorities were <laughs> from, you know, just stepping in the, uh, over the doorstep.
0: And so for those that may not know, what exactly is the golf season in North Dakota? When can you actually comfortably get out on the course and get your reps in?
1: Yeah, we usually, you know, open at some point during April and then close down in October. Uh, I always tell people, though, it's, you know, and anyone from the north knows this, the grass doesn't really get thick and full and luscious till maybe June. So your first couple months, you're just happy to be outside. You're happy that it's above freezing, but it's not like it's, you know, the courses are in great condition until about June. But usually June through October is, is is decent.
0: And so with that said, when you started getting into competitive golf rather than recreational and maybe branched outside of North Dakota, what was that like getting a taste of what the rest of junior golf had to offer? Obviously, you got to the top of it winning the U.S. Girls Junior, but what about when you first expanded your horizons into competitive golf?
1: Yeah, you know, it's so neat to look back on because, you know my family never dreamed of having a professional golfer in the family. Like I said, my dad loved the game um, and exposed us to it, but never pushed us into anything. And uh, for me, like my first taste of competitive golf was really watching my brother play and he would play in the local junior tournaments. And generally they're like categories of, you know, ages eight to 12 that he'd play in as an eight year old. And when he came home with a third place trophy, I thought that was the coolest thing. And I'm like, wow, he's competing with all these older kids, you know, and he's doing so well. And man, if I'd been practicing as much as him, I could be doing the same thing. So that kind of like was what spurred on the competitive fire, I think, for me. And at nine years old, I asked my dad if I could play a tournament, like if I could find one and I promised I'd practice. And dad was like, yeah, no problem. Like, we'll find one for you. But, you know, you have to put in a hundred percent and I'll pay the entry fee and drive you back and forth. But you have to commit, you know, to, to putting the work in. And then if you don't like it, you don't have to continue, but if you commit to something, you put a hundred percent in. So I remember like I had my calendar and I wrote down how many bags of balls I hit every single day in July, leading up to the Ironman golf junior classic (laughs) and it was just one of those things where it was a goal for me it was motivated. And I went out and I won that first tournament. Again, I was nine years old in the eight to 12 division. And from that point on, like I was addicted, you know, and that was really, um, that was my first experience with competitive golf. And then from that point on, my parents were like, well, okay, obviously you're interested in it. You have a talent for it. We'll look for a few more local ones. So I played in the local area and even expanding to like Minnesota had a pretty good junior program where you could travel, you know, an hour or two and and play against some decent players. And, but that's really all my parents wanted me to do. They didn't want us to do AJGA. A lot of it was just to do with the expense, you know, that, It's very expensive to travel to those events and stay, and you can't go by yourself, so a parent has to come and take off work. Um, So I really didn't play any national events till I was, I think it was 16, and it would have been the U.S. Girls Junior um, out in Connecticut the year before I won it. Um, That one and then the Junior PGA Championship were really my first two on the national stage, and that would have been in 2008, if I'm remembering right.
2: Yeah, Interesting, Amy. So you hadn't played a lot outside of North Dakota, Minnesota, that area. But you go to Connecticut and then the next year uh, you go to New Jersey to Trump National in Bedminster, New Jersey for the U.S. Girls Junior. And it's played concurrently with the U.S. Junior Amateur as well. Now, you're just 17 years old at the time and and hadn't played a ton. Uh, across the country but you know can you describe what that what that week was like uh going through uh, you being the qualifying medalist all the way through your championship match
1: yeah you know every tournament I went into, I just had zero expectations because I I didn't know where I fit in the national stage. I didn't know what to expect. Um, and I think that was kind of a blessing to be honest, the previous year I made it to match play and won a match, which to me was a huge success. Cause I just had no mm-hmm. idea coming from North Dakota. How do I stack up? Where am I at with other people in my age group? Um, so to me, that was like extremely encouraging that year before to have made the top 64 and won a match. So coming into it, my goal was really like, okay, maybe I can make it one more round than I did last year and coming in and then being medalist. So I'm, you know, the low in the stroke play and I'm just thinking I've already succeeded. You know, I mean, this is, that's a huge deal. And, um, I kind of know when I play well where I stack up and whatever happens the rest of the week, you know, I've already, you know, won in my own mind. Um, I remember some people talking about the jinx of the first seed or whatever, and, Oh, they're so glad they're not in that position. And I'm like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Like, this was already, you know, I was excited to have been in that position and ended up, um, You know, I had a really tough bracket that I worked my way through. Um, I remember getting to the final match and playing Kimberly Kim, who at the time was the, I mean, she'd already won the U.S. women's amateur, you know, so she was like top of her game, you know there really wasn't a tougher competitor that I could have faced and I remember going to bed the night before and just thinking okay I hope she plays well so that you know at least for tv it'll look good you know it's just so funny the things that go through your head because I'm just sitting here like I don't think like I'm that impressive so I hope she plays really well so people are impressed you know, and it's it was it's so silly. And I went out there and I played really well, ended up winning six and five, you know, over the thirty six holes. and um it, it was just a surreal week
2: and you moved right to the championship final, but your semifinal match, you almost didn't get to the final. You're two down to three to play. You won sixteen, you won seventeen, and then chipped in for par on eighteen, and then <laughs> won an extra hole. So lots of drama there uh, in in Bedminster. But also it, it had to be cool for you to listening to you tell some of these stories, you know, a uh, girl from a small town in North Dakota. You know, I, I think it seems like it proved to me and probably, you know, to many others as well. You don't have to be from Florida, you don't have to be from California or Arizona or any of these warm weather states or, or near a city or play, you know, or go to any of these junior academies you know, if you have the desire and and you have the work ethic, it seems like anything was possible. Is that kind of how you felt as a junior golfer growing up?
1: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, looking back, you just look at, um, there were so many odds, you know, stacked against me probably, but, um, I also just look at it. I feel like, um, my family, you know, they, they really valued a lot of the character that's necessary to succeed, whatever it's in, you know, and, um, so they taught me to work hard. They taught me, you know, the excellence and it's not about comparing yourself to other people. It's about comparing yourself to the best you can be or to perfection, you know? So I always had this standard I was trying to live up to that was the best I could be. And so I didn't sit and, and compare to myself to who are the other, you know, golfers in North Dakota. Um, And I think that's really, that was really helpful because it always, I always was pushing myself, whether I'd won the last tournament by, you know, eight or 10 strokes or, you know, if I'd lost, I always knew I could get better. So that was really helpful. And the other thing I will credit is I had really good coaching um, from about 12 years old on. And I think that was extreme. I mean, without good instruction, it it is really hard to improve and to continue that trajectory upward. Um, And so I was fortunate with connecting with a coach in a small town here in North Dakota, who um, just studied the game and loved the game. And so being able to have, you know, that pair of eyes that taught me and guided me kind of through high school and through college, that was really key as well.
0: And obviously, you had the support system, the family, the coach back in North Dakota. Was that the catalyst for you staying at North Dakota State for college? And take me through it, you know, the offers you might have had or or not had, maybe as an underdog of sorts, but the U.S. Girls Junior Champion playing golf at North Dakota State University, not something you hear very often, and then you go on to win 20 tournaments during your college career, breaking the USGA legend Julie Inkster's NCAA record. Take us through that entire process and what made you stay home and what it meant to you to stay home.
1: Yeah, for sure. There were a couple things that were really key to my decision. I would say the first one, like you mentioned, was my coach and my family. I'm really close to my family. The second thing was I was only 16 years old when I graduated high school. Um, I, my mom homeschooled me growing up and just put me in the same grade as my brother when we were really young because I started to read early, and then really I never branched off. So I just graduated um, at 16, and at that point I had played my first national exposure. Like I'd said, was the first time I played the U.S. Girls Junior in 2008, and so I'd gotten a little bit of national exposure. And people were kind of like, "Who's this girl from North Dakota? We haven't heard her. We haven't, you know, seen that name." And so I did get maybe seven to eight division one, um, offers around the country, but, uh, I didn't go on any visits to them. I really, I knew I was going to stay, uh, close to home. And then, you know, after I won the junior, then all of a sudden, programs are coming out of the woodwork and they're like, who, you know, can, you know, can we offer, we want you to come visit. We'd love to offer you a scholarship. And I'm like, I'm starting college in a month. Like I'm already committed, you know, cause I was just, you know, since I'd graduated early, I was really um, early into that track of starting college. Um, and I don't really think that had more programs reached out earlier. I don't think that would have changed my decision. I did want to stay, stay close to home and I wanted to continue to work with my coach. I felt like if I worked with him for four more years, you know, in the summer and even in the winters during school, I was going to be able to have such a better foundation with my swing. Once I did turn pro, than if I were to, you know, go down south and be able to play outside year round but be away from that familiarity and that coaching foundation that I was really starting to build on so that was that was probably the you know couple major factors that played into my decision
0: And then I wanted to talk about your time at North Dakota State a bit. A lot of people know about Carson Wentz, obviously, even Trey Lance, the quarterback coming out this year, who looks like a good NFL quarterback prospect. But there was also an All-America linebacker that you ended up knowing pretty well named Grant Olson. Tell us about Grant, your relationship at North Dakota State, and and how he may support you now that he's a linebackers coach. I'm sure he can get the competitive juices flowing as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, both. um, So... I guess I entered North Dakota State the fall of 2009, and it was really neat because the previous year was their first year of eligibility and um, for postseason eligibility in Division One. They'd transferred from D two five years earlier, and I think you have to sit for a period. So their first real success on the national stage at the division one level was men's basketball. They made it to the big dance, you know, the spring of 2009 and it was fun, you know, I'd already committed. So I was watching that and, um, you know, saw what they were doing. And so I was excited to come into a program that was having some sort of, you know, success. And, uh, so I came in and, you know, we were terrible my first year as, as the, the women's golf program we were trying to recruit another body just in case one of us got hurt because you know five have to play and we only had five so we you know recruited someone from on campus and um, had six my freshman year and I, I don't know if we finished last or close to last in our conference championship but um, we we were all had the mindset of like just wanting to get better worked really hard but just maybe didn't have the talent to start you know and each year we just kept getting better we kept working and the character and the attitude of my teammates throughout that time was phenomenal and they pushed me um i pushed them and you know by my senior year we ended up winning our conference championship and so for me to be part of the success of that program and then you know my coach texted me of course the year after i graduate when they broke our team record without me. Right. (laughs) So they're, they're low score, you know, they broke our, the low scoring record and they're like, see, we didn't need you, (laughs) you know, which is, you know, we just obviously have a great relationship and, you know, love to tease each other. But, um, it's been, it was so great to be part of a program and to be able to help build it and be on that side of it. You know, a lot of people are attracted to success and they want to come to a successful program, but there's just something, you know, when, when you're part of building that that's really special and, And uh, my husband was able to be a part of that on the football side. You know, I think his freshman year, which would have been fall of 2010, so a year after me, um, I think they went like three and eight as a football program and then turned it around. And his next three years, they won the national championship three times. So he was able to be a part of that on the football side. And I think that's just something that we both really treasure, being able to be part of that. Um, the funny thing is, we were there for three years, we overlapped, and we never spoke once in college. So wow. our relationship really started um, after he was, he, he had gotten into coaching, he was a graduate assistant out in Wyoming, for the head coach that he would played for his first three years at NDSU. So his coach had, had gone out to Wyoming, and then he was a grad assistant there. And we started messaging on Facebook and just kind of talking back and forth online, and, you know, fast forward about five or six months, we have our first date, and just over a year later, we were married. So our our relationship was pretty much entirely um, long distance, and it was after college. But of course, we knew who each other were. You know, we were both pretty prominent figures in the athletic um, department at NDSU, and um, had many mutual friends, but just never crossed paths ourselves.
2: Well, Amy, certainly a lot of individual accolades, a lot of team accolades for both you and Granite, North Dakota state. Uh, you turned pro in, uh, in 2013, you were on the USA Curtis cup team just before that in 2012. Uh, just to look at your career briefly, 2018 seems like a breakthrough year for you professionally, couple top 10 finishes in majors. And then 2020, certainly a, a strange year. You finished runner up in Australia, a great finish out there. And then don't play again on the LPGA Tour for almost five and a half months. What did you do during your time away from competition from March to mid-July here in 2020?
1: Yeah, that was, I mean, it was a weird time, I think, for everybody. And, you know, for for me, just trying to figure out, you know, you've got this pandemic looming and you're not really sure how long it's going to be. And the LPGA was basically at first canceling a couple of events at a time, you know, cause they were hoping that things would die down. So initially I was trying to stay sharp, you know, practicing a little bit. And then once they kind of canceled out to about, I think I was seven or eight weeks. I knew I wasn't going to be playing for that, like you know, almost two months. I'm like, okay, once we get back, they're going to try to reschedule all these tournaments. It's going to be nonstop, through 2021 is kind of what I was thinking. So I'm like, I'm going to just take another little off season here and, um, rest up, get a bunch of stuff done at home and, um, just enjoy being with Grant. Um, and so I really, I put the clubs away again in, I guess it would have been the beginning of April and waited for the weather to warm up. So, you know, four or five weeks later, the snow starts melting and started practicing here in North Dakota. And I actually had my coach come up here now. So I'm I'm now working with a a new coach about my third year on tour. uh, I connected with Ron Stockton out in Redlands, California, um, Dave Stockton's son, and we started working together. And uh, so I generally go out there and train during my off weeks or kind of during the off season. But this year with it, you know, the Essentially, our season season started mid-July. So instead of um, me going out to California at that point, I actually had him come up, and that was actually really neat. He got to experience North Dakota and um, my home course here in hometown. So um, that was just you know a totally different experience preparing for an upcoming season than you know, traveling away and preparing in, in Palm Springs, California.
0: And then you fast forward a bit and, and we'll take you right into December, Amy, to the U.S. Women's Open down in Houston, obviously rescheduled because of the pandemic and what a week it was for you. Starting in, in round one, you have the hole in one, a highlight for the ages and, and kind of fast forwarding, you know, you end up in that final group uh, with Hanako Shibuno who played lights out that week, um, went through some hardships, obviously with your family over the weekend and had to persevere and, and did so, you know, finishing tied for second in the biggest event in women golf. Take us through what that week was like for you and what you've learned from it and where you think it, it leads you.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'll even back up to the previous week. I'd had my coach come out to, we played in Dallas the week before. And so I had him come out the week before, cause I don't really like my coach out during a major championship. I kind of, if I'm going to make some tweaks or changes, I want that all done before major week. So he came out the week before we worked on a few things and I didn't play great in Dallas. So I'm kind of coming in, you know, I feel like I have a good idea of what I need to do, but it's just not quite clicking. Um, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and he, he, every, every time you tee it up, you're it, to me, it's always just that there's that little bit of unknown of how this week is going to go, and um, especially when you're not playing super well, there's there's some nerves. And so, I, I was the most nervous on Thursday of any of the days that week, to be honest. And I played great. I had the hole in one, which to me was just such a neat experience. I've had one other hole in one in competition, but to be able to do it at a major at the U.S. Open, um, just you know, a moment I will never forget. Um, that was super exciting. So I come off the course Thursday and I think I had a one stroke lead and I know how long tournaments are. So, you know, you can never get ahead of yourself, Um, but it's obviously a good position to be in means you're playing well. And, you know, fast forward to then Saturday and I played really pretty solid. I didn't play great on Friday. I played really solid on Saturday. Um, and so I'm going into, you know, Sunday with a one shot lead. And, um, unfortunately my husband, so I guess I got to back up because my husband was not planning to come out for, for the week, just based on testing protocols and, um, everything that's necessary for, um, to kind of keep the bubble intact. Well, it turned out with him, he had a COVID test with NDSU, the program, um, you know, the football program, they have to test regularly. And he was able to come out um, on a moment's notice, basically Saturday morning. So he flew out Saturday morning, watched me play all day Saturday. And then, as I'm going to pick up dinner after the round, meet him back at the hotel. And he had just gotten a call that his dad had had a heart attack. And this was completely out of the blue. Um, you know, his his dad was very healthy, 63 years old, extremely active. Grant had just been hunting with him the day before. And, you know, we, we sit there, we're praying, we're just, you know, we feel so helpless. And about an hour later, we get the call that he didn't make it. Um, so obviously, just an extremely um, emotional situation. And um, the best way I can explain it, and anyone who's been through it would, will just know the the shock that you feel, you know, it's just, There's nothing that can prepare you for it, and you're you're trying to process, but it doesn't feel real, Um, you know. So we go through that Saturday, and um, we show up Sunday morning, and it's raining, it's cold, and we we end up you know not playing on Sunday. They kind of keep giving us a 30 minute delay, or we'll give you an update in 30 minutes, Um, and finally the course is so soaked. There's just no way we can get out there and play. So, you know, at that point I'm like, Grant, you have to go home. You have to fly home, be with your mom, be with your brother. Um, you know, there's, there's just not much he can, there's, there's obviously nothing you can do anywhere, but I felt like that was the place that he needed to be. He felt like that's where he needed to be. Um, and so he left Sunday night. And um, then Monday I, I kind of just woke up and I'm like, you know What? We're going to have to deal with that and process those emotions eventually, but right now I've got a job to do. I have to get through the, through today, and and honestly, that's what my father-in-law would want. He would want me to finish. He would want me to, to go out there and approach it like any other tournament, and um, so obviously I, I played with a very heavy heart, um, and there were just so many – so many emotions that I just felt like I couldn't process them all. And I almost just kind of shut down. It was, it was a very out of body experience um, where I just felt like, you know, I've, I kind of fell into just habits, you know, golf has been kind of the one consistent in my life since I was, you know, six, seven, eight years old. And you just kind of rely on your routines and your habits. Yeah.
2: Golf could certainly be that golf course can be a refuge when, when anyone's going through a hardship. So I I can't imagine, you know, the heartbreak and emotions that that you and your family were going through during that time and on that day, but you were able to collect yourself and and amazingly focus on golf, a little bit of a slow start, three bogeys early in the round. uh, But then you played beautifully uh, the rest of the way and and a very, a very cool way to end a great birdie on the 72nd hole uh, to finish in a tie for second place tie for runner up. and, and that's when Amy, it seemed like the emotions kind of came out a little bit. You, you had a nice embrace with your caddy, and it seems like that—that's when it—it it finally hit you on that 72nd green as you were walking off. You know, now that you're able to the benefit of a little bit of time, a, a couple of weeks now, you know, what what was that like to put things in perspective? That that final round that you played down at Champions.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, you know, like you said, I had a really slow start that day. I, um, you know, had three bogeys early and you know the the first one was a a three putt from really long range I'd you know taken what I thought was enough club but it was just so cold the ball was going nowhere um and so you know had a three putt right away it's kind of an just an unforced error and um the next hole my drive goes haywire and I have to chip out and um the third hole just a tough par three and I i gave myself a very downhill putt, which I didn't realize it was that downhill and, you know, have another three putt. So, you know, just one of those where it's like, man, you just feel like the wheels are coming off and you didn't do anything terrible, but it's just like, man, you just can't get it going. Um, so I will definitely tell you that the, um, the birdie that I made a long birdie putt on hole five then, and that really helped to just like, calm me down. Like, it's going to be okay. You're going to have your bogeys. You're going to have your birdies. Um, just stay patient, kind of let it happen. And then was able to birdie the next hole as well. So that momentum change was huge for me. Um, and then at that point, you know, I'm, I'm seeing Hanako, She's making bogeys. Um, everyone on the f- in the field is really making bogeys because it's just so cold. Um, it's tough. You don't your hands don't have a ton of feel. Um, and then of course it's a major championship. It's not like the course is set up you know with easy pin positions or super short. Um, so I really at that point just settled into a rhythm made a ton of pars in a row. And that really, I was just in a very comfortable spot at that point. Um, You know, from an emotional standpoint, I was just very much like, uh, mental discipline was the theme of my day. I'm like, okay, I can't think about what's happening at home. And I can't think about, you know, getting ahead of myself, you know, raising that trophy, whatever, you know, it's just, you have to stay in the moment. Um, And so I did a great job of that. And I stayed very calm um, all day. And, you know, if I, if I could think back to maybe the, the one putt or the one shot I wish I could have back, it's not the shot on 16, you know, that I, that I hit just slightly over the green. That was a great shot. Um, I, I, maybe it's the putt on hole 13 for birdie. I had about a, you know, 10, 12 footer. And I think had that gone in, that would have maybe changed the, the trajectory of the day but, um, you know, overall I played really solid and obviously it was great to end with a birdie on 18. Um, but for sure, once that cut went in, that's where it was like, wow, okay. I survived this. I accomplished the mission that was in front of me. Um, and then just knowing that, you know, at that point it's like, okay, now I have a whole nother battle to deal with. And um, you know, just a way bigger battle. If we're being, you know, totally honest in the perspective of life, it's like golf is a very small, um, small part of our lives. It, it, it it's significant in some ways. Um, but obviously relationships are so much more significant than, um, that's just one of those things that, uh, you know, I, I went home the next day and um, we kind of just went through funeral preparations and just processed all of the good memories and um, we had a lot of laughs, a lot of tears and but I just I knew it was upcoming and so I kind of think um, after that final putt fell, I really allowed the weight of just what was going on around me to kind of sink in.
2: Well, I mean, certainly an inspirational performance. And I know you had a lot of fans before that week, but I think you gained a lot more uh, from from everything you were able to accomplish, both on the course and off the course uh, that week at the U.S. Women's Open. Uh, final question before we get you out of here. You know, I'm guessing a few fellow tour players came up for that wedding for you and Grant a few years ago in North Dakota. But have you been able to convince any of them to come up in December or January yet?
1: I have had one actually come up in December last year. Sydney Wow. good friend of mine. She came up for a football game and for the weekend and um, she did great. She borrowed, you know, a couple coats for sure and some mittens. But, um, you know, it's definitely a hard place to get people to come in December or January.
0: It sure is. And for those uh, fans that want to see you again soon, what's next for Amy Olson? Where can they catch you playing next? And and where do you think the U.S. Open uh, propels you?
1: Yeah. Um, my first tournament of 2021 is going to be February. I think it's the 25th through the 28th in Florida. Um, so looking forward to teeing it up there. Um, and yeah, I mean, obviously it's, that was my last tournament. So I'm, I'm kind of riding high right now as far as just confidence in my game and loving the trajectory that it's at, uh, I'm also really looking forward to just being back in that position. I love being in contention. I've been there, you know, multiple times and and haven't gotten the win yet. Um, but I, I really enjoy that atmosphere and, um, playing with, with a lot on the line, you know, it's, um, there's so many weeks where you're not in contention and, you know, you still care, but it is, um, it's really a special place to be and looking forward to more of that in 2021.
0: Well, it's certainly obvious you embrace those pressure moments. We can't wait to see you in more of those. And I'm not the first one to say it, but I think a lot of people know that you're going to break through very soon, Amy. So we really appreciate you joining us. We're really glad that you got some time off to go spend with your family. It was such an inspirational performance, as Mike said. And and believe it or not, we're going to see you in about five or six months for the next U.S. Women's Open out in San Francisco. So a very unique year with the tight turnaround, and we can't wait to see you out there.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well. It can't come soon enough.
0: It sure can't. Thank you so much, Amy. And thank you to everyone out there for joining us today. And a reminder, again, that the U.S. Women's Open will be played at the Olympic Club, a legendary venue from June 3rd through 6th. It'll be here before you know it. So keep it locked to uswomensopen.com and at U.S. Women's Open on Twitter and Instagram in the lead up to the 76th playing of this incredible championship. Again, thanks everyone for listening. For Amy Olson and my co-host Mike Trossel. I'm Dave Giancola. We'll talk to you next time.